Hi guys, and welcome to this episode of How to Wow, starring Alain de Botton, and brought to you by M&S Plant Kitchen. M&S Plant Kitchen launched in 2019 when their first vegan-friendly range took the meat-free world by storm. Exactly. And now, my friends, there are 100 plant kitchen products to choose from, which is excellent news for my family. As back in March, my wife, Tequila Tash, and I decided to go all in plant-based. We were in Los Angeles running our very own made-up marathon as we were due to run the Tokyo Marathon, which was cancelled due to, well, you know what. But we'd done the training, I'd booked the time off work, and we had arranged, we had arranged extensive international childcare. You see, the thing is, eating plant-based in California has traditionally been much more of a thing than here in the UK. But that's all changing, and changing at a pace. Da-da-da! Introducing the M&S Plant Kitchen. No chicken nuggets. They look like chicken. They smell like chicken. They're finger-licking like chicken, and they taste like chicken. At least as far as I can remember. It's been a while. But hey, don't take my word for it. Cut to my second eldest son, Eli, in the Evans plant kitchen. Eli, what's going on with the no chicken nuggets? Oh, they look like chicken, they smell like chicken, and they taste like chicken. Oh, they must be chicken. Oh, no, they're not chicken. Told you. And he's had actual chicken a lot more recently than me. But that story's for another day. Sticking with the no chuck chuck chicken now, there's also the delicious, and I mean mouth-meltingly delicious No Chicken Kiev. M&S Plant Kitchen's most successful vegan launch ever, with one being sold every four minutes. There's probably one outside your window right now. Take a look. Largely because of their indulgent garlic filling waiting to explode in your mouth underneath that coating of crunchy golden breadcrumbs. I want one now. And then there's the kiddies' favourite plant kitchen cauliflower popcorn, which we paid our kids in to do this. Plant kitchen! I think it could be a hit. Other scrummy treats include PK posh hot dogs, PK green Thai curry, and the to die for PK coleslaw salad, the first ever vegan coleslaw to hit supermarket shelves in the UK. Wow! Talking of wow, it's time now to how to wow. Thank you, MNS Plant Kitchen, for helping make this show happen. Come in, NW3. Come in, NW3. Oh I my God, that's perfect. brilliant! You can you hear me? Uh, sounds great. <laughs> Actually, yes. Uh, I don't know. Yes, I can hear you. Um, yes, I can hear you totally well. Um, Good. It's amazing technology. How, the, how these guys do it? How are? Um, <laughs> Good, good. I'm good. I've got a leak in my basement, though. You know, it's one of those things. Oh, a leak in the basement. Ah. How do you how do you suspect that might have happened? I don't know, but I'm trying to apply philosophical calm, trying to tell myself none of this <laughs> none of this will matter in the long term. Right. <laughs> I would call Dynarod instead if I were you. I agree. I agree. <laughs> have you ever been in more demand for interviews than the last six months in um, your life? No. <laughs> no. Weirdly, um, well spotted. Um, it's it's a weird time, isn't it? For um, pe- people are looking for, I don't know what they're looking for. I mean, imagine when an asteroid hits the Earth. Philosophers just won't won't have a minute to themselves. I know. And the thing is, we've been here before, and we'll be here again. You know, this is collective global. You know, human adversity. Um, it's it's being sold a little differently. It's terrible, uh, but also there are lessons within. Yeah. 
Um, definitely struggling to see what they are. No, no, but yes. Um, I think everybody's thinking, we've, we've done all the philosophy, we've done everything. Can we just get on with the rest of our lives? Um, could the virus tire of teasing us? It was quite exciting at first. It was a chase against an adversary that seemed almost thrilling. But now, I think it's just, um, an, it's, it's gone on too long. Could, could this movie end? You talk about parking, you know, people park the fact they're going to die because there's nothing they can do about it. And so we become obsessed with things we can do and things that are beyond our control. We sort of accept, uh, ironically, and then we sort of, we, we pick up the mantle of being able to, to worry and conquer things that we might be able to, to affect one way or another. Um, yet the coronavirus and COVID-19 seems to be beyond our control, really, I, I, you know, realistically, yet we're sort of pretending or we're being asked to pretend it isn't. Mm, I know. I think that we all know a lack of control at an individual level. Like if you went to the doctor and they said, well, I've got to do more tests and I'm not sure, etc. We know, we know what it's like to be sick individually. But this is scarier because it seems like the entire world is sick. And so we're behaving, we're, we're I mean, you know, we don't compute. We can't compute. And so I think it's um, a major test of our ability to um, surrender control and trust, even though there's not much evidence, that things will be okay. They will be okay in the long, long term. I mean, there have been five mass extinctions. didn't know that. I thought there'd only been one. Five times human life on the planet had to sort of start again or took major steps back. So... In the bigger picture, everything's fine. In the long term, everything's going to be fine. We'll be dead, but everything else will be fine. And I think we have to identify with the course of the universe. If you identify only with your own narrow life, things get quite punishing. If you can try and identify with the course of the universe, maybe that's better. I don't now, know. this is you, you getting all universal. I'm liking that, Allah. I, I think it's, it's Buddhist. I think it's um, the dissolution of the ego. I mean... People say, you know, he's got a big ego, she's got a big ego, etc. Um, there's, there's a big truth in that. I mean, I think we human beings can, uh, we are capable of um, sort of switching from an individual perspective to a global perspective in which we don't loom so large. Um, we, can, we can look at the earth as if we're not part of it. That's a unique ability. Um, and the more we can do that, especially when the basement's flooding <laughs> or the earth is ending, then it's, it's better. Um, Where do you sit between the two egos, the duality, the false ego and the real ego? Because a lot of people say it's the false ego that's the problem, but the real ego we need to drive, you know, get us out of bed every day, to fall in love, to, to, to build buildings, to design this and the other, to write masterpieces. Yes, I mean, clearly nothing would be done if we didn't have that 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 sort of bad ego um, that uh, that gets us out of bed, but nevertheless brings us a lot of a lot of trouble. I think I think the, the Buddhist starting point is there's no risk of this individualized, self-seeking ego disappearing. Most of us have got that dialed right up to the top notch. So what we need to do is to dial it down at certain points. There's there's no danger that we're going to forget about ourselves and sit around indolently not doing anything. Everybody's sort of manic, trying to, you know, stave off everything. Um, so most of us are not have not got any shortfall in that area. So so the muscle we have to flex is the other one, um, the muscle that teaches us to to surrender, 
to accept ignorance, to accept our fugitive nature, to um, to let go. You know, that's the one that we need to to work on, especially with age. I mean, I think it is also to do with age. Uh, I, I like the. I like the Buddhist idea that there are f- stages of life and at different stages you will need different amounts of this ego. And so when you're young, you're studying, you're building up a family, etc., you're going to need a lot of it and that's okay. But it almost becomes obscene to keep doing this as you get older, that the task is to sort of merge with the universe mentally before death decays you physically and it happens anyway. But you want to... You want to be rehearsing that as you get old. And I'm past 50. When you get past 50, you're just 30, aren't you? So in, in a few years, you'll um, you'll be getting there. But um, but I'm ahead of you and just, well, just I'll, I'll Anna, let you know. I'm 54. No, 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 you're 32. It's true, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I know, I'll take um, it. I, I feel fantastic at the moment. How do you feel at the moment? Uh, good. Yeah, really good. I've been taking vitamin D and, uh, yeah. Uh, everything's well, but but it's an illusion. I mean, we are collapsing. We are at a fast rate. Have you done that death clock thing where it tells you how much time you've got left? Well, I started talking about it on the radio and everybody said, please be quiet because, you know, you know, mm. this is depressing enough as it is. So I, I just thought I'd better wind my neck in. Yeah, um, I know. I mean, I think it's uh, it's not a popular subject. But then again, if we could be cheerful about death, it is the thing that lends everything its it's intensity. I mean, love becomes so much more intense knowing that we're going to die. Um, travel, springtime, the seasons, a fig. I mean, if you meet a fig in the context of death, you're thinking, how many figs have I got left in me? Um, this is a beautiful <laughs> fruit of nature. I just, had a, I just had a great fig the other day. And I just thought, isn't it amazing the planet produces figs? It's the time of figs, isn't it? You sound more reflective than I've ever heard you. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, you've oh. got that whole thing about, you know, one day at a time, haven't you, at the moment? I think so. One day at a time. Um, I think, you know, I quite like it when you've got people who are sort of unwell and, and, and they could be a child, they could be a very old person. They just take it a day at a time. They go, you know, it's five o'clock and they go, hmm, time to have a nice cup of tea. It's the end of the day. We've reached the end of the day. Nothing terrible's happened. It's all right. And I quite like that attitude. Quite like that sort of the modesty, also the sort of the coziness of it. The sort of um, yeah, you know, we we don't know about the bigger picture, but today is ending well, so we're just going to put the kettle on. That's there's a lot of wisdom in there, I think. I think so too. Now you're famously atheist, but you're speaking to Buddhism there a lot. Is there anything? Is there any breaking news we need to? Any de Botton breaking news we uh, need to learn on? I do. I do love so many aspects of religion. I just cannot believe. I've had so many letters from people, mostly Church of England vicars going, you know, I heard you on the radio. I think you're on the verge of meeting God. And I I write back politely going, thanks so much, but it's not going to happen. However, I love your services, lovely buildings too, Um, great music. Uh, You know, they've got the kit. It's, It's brilliant. It's just the belief is, is cr- insane. But sorry, God, I'm in trouble now. But you know what I mean? Um, I can't believe it, but I love so many aspects of the you know religion, the religious calendar, the, the constant call to be modest in the face of something bigger, stronger, more awe-inspiring than anything that humans can do. That's, you know, but you can do that with a NASA image of, you know, one of the outer nebulae 
nebulae of um, you know in, in in the universe i mean you don't need a god to, uh, to 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 do that the sublime the sense of the sublime you you can just go out for a walk in a park at night and look up and it's all there it's written in the sky all all the religion you ever needed is is up there so um yeah i don't believe but i want to no i don't really want to but i want to import into my life a lot of the things that religious people um have not least also community i mean it's great to have people around and you know not just discussing the ego stuff but discussing the sort of death and sublime stuff well you often reference the bible don't you so so you do you you respect the bible um you reach out to the Bible, you talk about Job, you talk about materialism, you talk about making it, losing it all. You know, the best way to amass a small fortune is to start with the big one and then mess it up. Yeah, um, I quite like the Bible. Um, I think I think we should write a new one. Um, you and I could write it, could start to write it, and then we get contributions from other wise people. And then we put <laughs> it out there. I think it could catch on. Um I mean, it's obviously not the wisest book in the world. It really isn't. There, there are bits and, you know, the language is lovely. That ancient, the ancient cadences are, are really nice. And again, they, they sort of help us to reframe our experiences. It's not just the headlines and what's happening today. It's, you know, this guy who begat this guy, who begat the other one, who, you know, it's, it's, it's all quite, it's, it's beautiful poetry from times before we had phones, before... Um, the president became the president and all that. So it, it, it contextualizes very usefully. And the story of Job, that's, that is, that's a really wonderful bedtime story for anyone who's feeling um, hard done by, because this guy really got it bad. And um, he, there was no direct consolation. So it's a really haunting book in the Bible, because actually, it just says, trust, but I'm not going to give you any reasons why. And meanwhile, Life is pretty awful. Um, the book of Job was very consulted during the Holocaust as the Jewish people thought, what is happening to us? And in a way, there was no answer, but the book of Job provided the, the best possible uh, framing of, of this appalling event. Now, you've been talking, you talked there, you, you mentioned um, Trump, you mentioned social media, um, news outlets now, 24 hours. Uh, we, you know, we are not programmed as human beings, are we? We are not designed to, to be beaten up by so much bad news every day and it's always been more than we should well in the last couple of hundred years it's always been worse than it should have been but now it's at levels that are um, unsustainable and something's going to have to change yeah i mean i think so look in so much so many areas of life we have to make conscious efforts to discipline ourselves and train ourselves over things that we didn't have to train ourselves before because there was no option of becoming decadent or corrupt or getting into difficulties in this area because there just wasn't enough. And so most obvious one is, of course, food. Um, you know, when there was just the odd strawberry, our enormous, insatiable hunger for sugar was not a problem because how many strawberries could you really eat and how much damage could they do? Nowadays, we have to have an iron will every time we go to the kitchen especially when you're over 30 or over 40. You, you know, you, you have to watch it. You cannot, you know, it's the discipline involved is enormous. And we have some of the same thing around information. I mean, in the past, 
of course, we love to gossip. We love to know what was going on. Our, our senses were trained on any new bit of news from somewhere else. And that served us well. And again, there was no danger of us ever gorging ourselves. Now we have to lock the door. We have to have an iron discipline to say, I'm not going to look at this. You know, this is somebody's problem somewhere in the world. It's not mine. Right now, I've got to do something else right close to home. And that will involve shutting the door on the news all around me. Um, and and it's it's very, very hard. And no one no one tells us this in a in a gentle voice. You either hear sort of fierce admonitions that make you feel guilty, sort of like, never look at your phone after eight o'clock. And you just think, oh, that's not gonna happen, is it? So it's too it's too tough. But we need we definitely need some gentle assistance in the area of telling us to um, focus inwards, not outwards. And the other great danger through that particular um, lens of um, a technology that's available to us now all the time is the is comparison has never come easier to us. Mm. And therefore, um, the envious envy of comparison has never been more prevalent or dangerous. And my favourite quote from you about this is, yeah, that's all fine, but you can't be envious of the Queen because she's too weird to compare yourself to. Yeah, I mean, this is the weird thing, really, that um, we don't envy everybody. We only envy people that at some level we can compare ourselves to. Uh, and you get this, you know, there's no one that you envy more than the person you went to school with, uh, someone who's your age, someone who's your gender. The, the, the more two people approximate, uh, then the more danger there will be of envy. Now, the thing about the modern world is that it's it's basically tried to level the playing field totally. It's basically said it's a giant race and uh, the starting gun goes and you should just look around you to see how you're doing in relation to everybody else. And this is why everybody's being driven mad by this. And you'll know people who have got unbelievable amounts of esteem, fame, money, achievement, etc. behind them. And yet they're looking around and they're going, it's not enough. How has this happened? How can we have so much and yet feel so lacking? It's because our sense of what is enough tends to be determined by the people around us. So what we need to do, of course, is to remind ourselves that our own life is actually unique. We can't do this easy comparison. So you, it, it doesn't work to say, look, here's a Silicon Valley billionaire. He's exactly the same age as me. Uh, he's done so much more. How terrible. That's not a fair comparison. It's not fair on anyone. It's not fair on yourself. It's not fair on the billionaire. All of us are very, actually very different and very unique. And therefore, this constant business of comparison misses out on all the ways in which our life story is very particular. Um, I also like to think that life really isn't just one race. That There are dominant races going on, races for fame, money, etc. And the spectators are all gathered around those races. And the noise in the media is all about those races. But actually, all of us are running many, many different types of race. There's the race to be the richest and the most famous, yes. But there's also the race to be the kindest, the mellowest, the one who sleeps best, uh, the one who eats a healthy diet, the one who's quite funny at home, uh, the one who's kind to children, etc. We're, we're all of us running at least, you know, 15 races, if not more. And to measure yourself just on, you know, the one race is, um, again, unfair probably to yourself uh, and to the people around you who are probably being involved with you in those other races. And if you're not putting much effort, you may be harming them um, because they, they're involved as well. 
And that's about metrics, isn't it? Because we've become addicted um, or brainwashed to thinking things are important that can be measured and then clarioned to the rest of the world. That's that's the problem there. Um, yes, that's right. And I think that, you know, we're we're clan creatures. We used to live in groups of up to, but not more than, about 150 people. And we now are exposed to the entire world. And so we can't really gauge um, how serious... I mean, I, I've been involved in this. I'm sure you've been involved with this. Um, friends, etc. You know, you, you, you look on Twitter and you suddenly realise that somebody's complaining about you and they're saying, you know, this person's a bad person or done this wrong. And you think, oh my God, it's, it's terrible. Um, and it seems like a lot of people are piling on. It's, it looks like a Twitter pile on. And there are a hundred people who are, you know, shouting and saying you've done a bad thing. Now, what we're not seeing often at that moment is, okay, it's a hundred people. So our our primitive brain is, is, is wired up to think you've got a hundred enemies, you are in mortal danger because that's how it used to be. That's, you know, for thousands of years. Um, a hundred enemies meant your end. We're now living in a world where you could have, you know, 12 million friends and a hundred enemies. 12 million friends are doing other things. They're not telling you that you're great. They're just, you know, absent. But you've got those hundred enemies. So you obsess. And so this is what happens to people who have any level of fame, which is actually nowadays everyone, because everyone who's got an Instagram account, a Twitter account, etc., have got a level of fame. So people, people panic and they go, I've got three enemies who are posting bad things. And you want to go, yeah, but how many people are A, not posting bad things, uh, and B, how many people would be considered your friends in the same metric? So we are, our brains are not really made for um, the technology that we're using. We're, we get panicked far, far too easily by the opposition that everybody's now running into. Well, let's let's talk about panic because that's really interesting. So, um, you know, four means of comparison that have never existed before also see means of being judged and therefore judging. And, um, you know, uh, unlikes um, criticism often uh, provokes reaction. Reaction is when we can be not necessarily at our worst, but at our least useful to ourselves. So can you speak to, um, if you don't mind, some kind of uh, debotter hack here on how to respond, to, to breathe, take a pause and respond, or even have the choice to not respond at all other than to react? Mm. Well, obviously reaction is not a, is not a good thing. Um, one of the, you know, the standard advice is switch it off, don't look at it, let's go for a walk. And it's well-meaning, but I think I I quite like the method of exhausting the source of anxiety. Um, so rather than trying to run away from it, drive into it and just tire it out. So go, all right, I'm going to spend the next 16 hours on this problem. I've got a sheet of paper, I'm clearing the diary. I'm going to call every friend I know. I'm going to talk to 12 therapists and I'm just going to go into this problem. And then halfway through this marathon of examination, you just get bored. You just think, you know what? I can't be jagged anymore. I'm just, I can't be bothered. And you go off and you live the rest of your life. And but but I think the sort of cheer up, don't worry, don't look at it, move on. Um, what then happens, if we're looking at comparisons with basements, that is like putting, you know, new plasterboard or paint over a leaking, over a leak in the, in the thing. Better to strip out the wall, find out what's going on and just tire it out. Let it drain itself. Let it let it go until there's, there's no more. Um, and I think that um, that's where a little bit of 
um, in a way, almost self-indulgent behavior is good. Uh, you know, CBT, those CBT psychotherapists, they call this exposure therapy. Expose yourself to the sort of the worst of your fear. Um, the Stoics were very keen on this as well. Uh, and then um, and then you'll literally get bored of it eventually. Yeah, I know. You refer to the Stoics obviously a lot because they're your favourites. Um, but also, you know, when it comes to reassuring people, you know, it's going to be all right. No, 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 no. It's not going to be all right. Um, but what's the worst that could happen? You're going to die. Okay, well, you've parked that one. Um, and so what would the second paragraph in that particular conversation be as far as you're concerned? Well, look, um, I've got a friend who's a BA pilot, and he told me a really interesting thing. He said that a lot of the time, what they're doing on flights, when they're, you know, not much seems, not much is going on, there's always somebody in the cockpit calculating where is the nearest airfield if an engine blew up, two engines blew up, if we had to ditch. They're constantly looking around for where they would put the plane down. That's fascinating when you think about it, because I, I was really surprised. I thought, God, so you guys are, are flying a stoic airline. I mean, all airlines do it. But but essentially, they're always looking for what would we do if things went really wrong right now? They're, they're thinking about it every minute. Stoic air. <laughs> stoic. We love it. We love it. <laughs> Can you imagine what lunch would be like? I'm not sure what it would be like, but it, it would be brief. Um, anyway, so so they're constantly thinking, where's the nearest, uh, you know, valley, river, lake, etc., where I could put down this plane. And I think we should go through the journey of life pretty much thinking the same. It's not to say that we're expecting it to happen, but if it did. Um, so the other day I was with a group of friends and we were doing an exercise like this and they all had jobs and lives where, you know, on a good day, everything was going to be fine, but there was a scenario in which everything would collapse. So one said, oh, it's a desert, it's a hut in the desert, you know, the Arizona desert, a cheap cheap property. I could sell up here in London and go and live there. Uh, another one was going, you know, I could move to the Canary Islands. There's a lovely little island called La Gomera. I could settle there, just live very, very cheaply. I've probably got another 20, 30 years to live. I could I could live till, you know, till then, etc. So they were, they were coming up with their plan Bs, their plan Cs, their plan Ds. And I think it's quite a relaxing exercise um, because otherwise you, you box yourself in and you think, I can only be happy if everything is as good as it is now, let's imagine. Mm. And it might not be. So just, just you know, take a lesson from those BA guys. Do a little bit of planning. Imagine what, where you would ditch if you had to ditch. Yeah. And probably the aircraft wouldn't survive. You'd lose a wing. Uh, an engine would be scrapped, etc. But hopefully you'd get the thing down on the ground in roughly one piece. I mean, that's such an interesting perspective, isn't it? Because you can go to the gym and try and become as strong as you like, but you don't know why. Or you can just check out how fragile or, or unfragile you need to be. And the anti-fragility take on things it can be extremely useful. You know, like you say, how bad can it get? How strong do I need to be? How much money do I need to have? You know, and, and once you sort of have a look at that, once, once you analyse or reverse architect, if you like, um, your... your I don't know, your day-to-day -day needs, your day-to-day -day wants, your desires, the things that make you happy. Which you, that great phrase, you know, what you're looking for is where you're looking from or even already where you're looking from. The anti-fragility thing. I mean, have you employed that in your life? Because we, we all get carried away with things. We get, I get very excited about, you know, our, my personal journey when it's going well. And, and you're running along and you don't realise you're using fuel that you really need to put in, in the reserve tank. Uh, sh should you know should the should the shit show hit the fan Allah 
Yep, yep. <laughs> um, yes, I mean, I think it's such an important exercise. I always think, um, well, think about, you know, when you were at school, university, you know, most of us lived really simply. Like, if we were lucky, we had one little bedroom, and we had a very few possessions. And now, you know, as an adult, most of us have houses, we've got stuff, etc. And we play a lot of great attention. But life was possible when we had just a little room. And we had maybe an angle poise lamp, and a chair, and a little desk, and it was all right. And you know, and you had four pairs of trousers, and it was that was it. And that was, you know, and you, life was okay. And sometimes you look at people and you think, They've had to go to the doctor, they've had some surgery, and they've now got to, I don't know, speak through a voice box, or they've lost a leg, or they've got to do some stuff in a bag, or whatever. And you think, I couldn't take this. This this would be too much for me. I, I just couldn't take it. And it's quite good to do a thought experiment. You go, well, look, okay, if it's that or death, what would you take? Most of us would go, you know what, I'd take that thing. And then just think, would you be able to cope? Would it be pleasant? No. Would it be bearable? Probably. It would probably be bearable. I mean, you know, we can bear... I think, I think the thing about us is that we think we can't bear things that actually, oddly, we can. Um, sometimes we think, you know, I couldn't live without a person. And then somehow we have to, and we cope. Um, we, we are deeply, deeply tough creatures as well. Life, we don't want to give up on life. We want to cling to it. Um and we'll sacrifice a lot in order to keep being here. Um, and I think it's it's useful to talk to people who've lost an awful lot, you know, and, and you say to them, how did you keep going? How how come you're still here? And they go, sometimes, they, you know, their answers are really surprising. Like they'll go, um, you know, I love gardening. That's, I've got a tiny patch of garden and that's why I live here. I live here because I'm continuing to live because next spring there's going to be flowers. And you think, wow, that's that is heroic. That's true heroism. Someone who's battling every day is a battle, but they're keeping going. Um, you know, mental illness is another one. I mean, anyone who's had experience of this, you know, there'll be days when people who were battling things, they well, they're just constantly thinking, am I going to make it to the next hour? Um, is is any of this? Is there any point in any of this? And these are. You know, these are truly heroic people. Outwardly, they're not doing anything. They're not scaling Everest. But if they manage to make it through to evening, they deserve a kind of medal. So suffering, um, you know, sharing the suffering of others, getting involved in the suffering of others can, again, make us stronger, make us more imaginative about failure and pain. Back to Buddhism. Uh, so I've never been a fan of to-do lists, um, but I think I think you might be a fan of the wireless. So... This is a list where you look at what you're doing and what you've done and why you did things and why you're doing things. And that can be more helpful. What would you call Do you call them thought lists? What do you call them when you write these things down? Well, I don't know. I mean, look, the weird thing about our brains is that they're mostly ignorant of what goes on inside them. And we know this um, in relation to the sort of physiology of our different organs. So, you know, you have lunch you know that you want a packet of crisps and a sandwich. But from there on, the brain takes over, the unconscious brain takes over, it breaks down the crisps, breaks down the thing, tells you need a bit of water, etc. Most of what we're doing is unconscious. Um, and we accept that in many areas. But of course, in the area of our sort of emotional management of ourselves, most of it's going on unconsciously as well. 
And this is really puzzling and almost, if you like, a bit humiliating because you think, hang on, I live here, but I don't know what most, what, what's going on. If you compare it to a house, it's like we've got the keys, we're getting through the front door, but once we're inside, most of the rooms are not accessible to us. And we live in a tiny little room somewhere. It's brightly lit. It's got some windows out into the outer world. But behind us and all around us are rooms that we can't enter. And not only that, they're rooms full of things that we're scared of and that need arrangement uh, and that are playing havoc on what's going on in the brightly lit rooms. And I think part of the task of sort of growing as a human being is to try and become better able to know different bits of the house of yourself. And that means fighting. And it is sometimes a fight to open some doors and go, right, I'm going to go in and switch on the light. It's scary. I don't want to. But what is going on in the room of you know, relationships or in the room of my relationship with my mother, my sister, my aunt, whatever it is. And um, it's it's anxiety inducing, but it, it can be so nice, just like it's lovely to clean out a cupboard. It's lovely to sort out a room of the mind. And one of the best ways to do it is to sit down with a pad, pad of paper and a pen, not much to do, maybe some music on, maybe you're riding, a, a, taking a train, uh, it could be lying in the bath, and you're just sorting out your own mind. And you're asking yourself questions like, what am I worried about? Or what did I really feel about that? Or what do I really, really want? Or what am I angry about? Or where's that feeling coming from? And it's hard work. It's really hard work. We, we want to check Twitter much more than we want to do this. But if you manage to go into some of these rooms and sort stuff out, it can be so salutary. You, you, you genuinely feel lighter. There are less things pressing on you. Because I think, you know, things like insomnia, you know, insomnia is like the revenge for the mind. It, it, it's all those thoughts that you haven't had during the day and they're battling to be heard in the night. They'll, they'll wake you up because they need to be seen. And if you don't do enough thinking about those deeper things in the day, you're going to have trouble sleeping. Um, and you'll probably have trouble being calm because anxiety is, is, as it were, unthought ideas pushing their way through. So that's an inventory you're talking about there. So, so you know, do you have to then unpack it? Because you, what you're doing, you said, you know, you write down what's worrying you. Why do I think that? How am I with this person? What, what's going on with my work at the moment? You know, why, why do I feel compelled to go to the gym? Why do I not want to go to the gym? What, what's going on with Twitter? So you, you, that's the inventory process. But what might you do with that? You know, is, is that in a way, is that, is, that, is that half of the unloading? Is, you know, do, do you feel so well, lightened by that that it's, your, it's half the battle anyway? I think the key thing is to bring it into focus. I think the thing about our minds is they're very vague. We have accurate data from our minds about some things, but not really about others. For example, if you told me, you know, I've just been to see a film, it's hilarious. And I said, how interesting. Now, let me just get a bit forensic with you. Why was it so funny? Uh, you, first of all, that question will be a bit annoying. But if I keep probing, I say, Chris, why was it funny? And, and why in the in the third minute did you laugh? And you'll go, look, to be honest, I don't know. I just laughed. It was just funny. Leave me alone. And <laughs> in other words, the, the or, or if you said to me, I don't know, I, I went to Switzerland and I went, went to the top of the mountain and I looked at the view, it was just lovely. And I say, okay, Chris, stop there. Lovely. Why? Why was it lovely? And you'll go, I don't know. It's just lovely. Shut up. This is why I've got no friends. Um, but but generally, the, the data from our minds is is 
is there. It's clear but vague, as it were. It's clear that we have a feeling, but why we have that feeling and what that feeling's really about is vague. So you could go, I'm annoyed, but I don't know why. Or I really like something, but I'm really excited about something, but I don't really know what it is that I'm excited. You know, I met somebody and we had a little chat and something about what they said left me feeling, yes, something here, but I don't know what. And what we need to do is to go from vague to f- in focus. It's literally like, like tightening the, the lens of our mind to bring things into focus. And the way we've got to do that is, this is a method that, this is, this is what they used to call the Socratic method, literally a method invented by Socrates way back in ancient Greece. And what it is, is a question of asking yourself a number of things around a vague thought. So you start off by going, okay, the view is lovely. Why is it lovely? And you, you, you take the first thing you answer, you say, because uh, it's big. You go, okay, right. Um, what is it about bigness that, you know, that, that, is, that is nice? Um, is, it, is, is a big uh, problem good? Mm, no, big problem's not good. Okay, so it's not just bigness that's good. It's big, you know, blah, blah, blah. And you just try and refine, 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 refine until eventually you get to something that's more in, in focus. So it's, you, you really have to become um, a sort of an analyst to yourself, uh, even, I mean, I use that word pointedly. It, that, of course, that is what psychotherapy does. Um, when you go and see a psychotherapist, you, you'll say something like, I'm really, I'm really annoyed with my friend. And the therapist will go, okay, um, does that remind you of anything? And you might go, hmm, funny question. You might have to think a little bit and you go, mm, yeah, that, that friend reminds me of, you know, how it was with my dad when he never understood or whatever it was. And so again, it's about, it's about being patient with the first fruit that your mind produces and and trying to refine it and bring it into focus. So clever. Um, so you talked about environment there. Um, and I know you you couldn't be a bigger fan of architecture. And I went onto your Holiday Homes, uh, for want of a better title, website last night, where you've created these amazing houses um, that are so beautiful. Um, and just looking at them made me feel calm. And I've been to your house and, you know, it has that about it as well. Um, so if you don't mind, can you speak to architecture? Can you speak to environment? Can you speak to, you know, just when you were describing the simplicity of a desk in an angle poise, all I could see was a hockney. You know, sometimes just looking at a simple hockney makes me feel calmer as opposed mm. to something else. Almost calmer than looking at the sky sometimes. So can can yeah. you speak to architecture and environment and why it's so important and why we need to give it... Well, we don't need to do anything. You know, who are we to tell anybody else what they need to do? But you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, look, I think it's deeply, deeply unfortunate how susceptible we are to the sort of visual and sensory environment around us. You know, we're talking now and it's coming up to... October, it's it's the nights are going to get dark and the sky is going to be in a worse mood. And many of us are thinking, this is a serious problem for how I feel about myself, about my future, about what it's like to be alive. You know, winter saddens us and summer cheers us up. On a big scale, this is some of what happens in all areas. There are certain rooms that cheer us up and others that drag us down. It would be so nice if this wasn't the case. It would be so nice if our mood was completely independent of our environment. Because, you know, most of us are now living in northern latitudes where it's going to get dark. And most of us have to live in environments that are less than adequate. Our our eyes and our senses are so susceptible to what is in front of them. You know, we can take massive delight in a beautiful little picture. And it might just be, you know, 
10 by 15 centimeters. And, and it's just lovely. And we think, oh, this is, this is great. We can look at a postcard and be cheered up by it. So think what happens to most of us when we wander around the world. You know, we live in a really, really ugly man-made world. Um, you know, there are pretty parts of London. There are pretty parts of, you know, Dusseldorf and Frankfurt and Birmingham and Melbourne. But there are also less than wonderful parts. And many of us have got to walk through those parts or drive through those parts or live in those parts every day. And it drags us down. You know, I was um, I was in a part of London the other day uh, looking up at a flyover. I won't name it because people get upset by it. But anyway, I was at a flyover and I just thought, this is such an insult to everyone who's got to be here every day. It's so ugly. It's so, But more than that, there was a certain kind of violence. It's almost like that underpass was saying, uh, you don't matter. Nothing that you are is of value to me. Um, you know, your life is of no significance. And, you know, go away and shut up. It, it, it's almost like the, the buildings were insulting those who, you know, had to use them. But compare that with certain buildings that seem to be kind. They're literally going, you know, come in, you know, have a seat. Uh, I'm welcoming. I'm kind. I'm going to look after you. I'm strong. I'm going to protect you against the sort of nastiness of the world. And, you know, we thrill to those environments. We we call them beautiful. But more than beautiful, what they are is reassuring. They they tug us back to who we want to be most of the time, but but can't manage to be. I personally am a real fan of calming environments. So people sometimes say, oh, you must be a really calm person. I go, no, no, I'm really not calm. That's why I need these places. It's, it's, you know, if you go to somebody's house and it's really relaxed, it's probably the sign that you've walked in on somebody really pretty tense because they're going to find that beautiful. I think that the thing that we find beautiful, the way we use that word beautiful is, is very often in relation to something that's missing from us. So I've got a friend who loves really, really ornate, rich South American fabrics and colors. It's it's loud, it's busy, etc. And whenever I see that stuff, I think, oh, it's too much. You know, that's like the inside of me. It's like I'm I'm too busy and there's there's too much darkness and and sort of too much I don't know, emotion and I want to I want something Nordic and calm but they had a very different they got a very different outlook on life they grew up in much sort of calmer mellow they're in danger of getting a bit bored of getting a bit sort of um, used to dull habit etc so they're looking in their decoration for a sort of more passionate sensory in injection, whereas I'm looking for calm, etc. So, so a really interesting question to ask anyone that you come across is, you know, what's your style, uh, you know, of beauty? What do you find beautiful? Because in that is really a way of saying what's missing from your life. What do you, what do you love, but you feel permanently sort of um, out of sync with? The other day, I saw um, a beautiful little picture of it was her still life of a flower in a vase. And I thought, oh, that's so nice. And I thought, why am I finding this so nice? And I thought, you know what this is? It's so sweet and tender. And sometimes life's pretty tough. You know, you're fighting big things. There's like big issues, et cetera. And, and it's like, it was a picture of innocence and, and just gentleness and a sort of an easier time. And I thought, God, I long for that. I, I realized the reason I was finding this picture beautiful is because I want to go back to that psychologically. Of course, it, it emerges in relation to a, a, a work of design or art. But, but ultimately, we're talking about psychology here. 
So much thought. I and mean, I know you read voraciously and you do things like this for people like me when you don't need to. So I'm very grateful. And you write your books and you've got the school of life and everything else. I don't know. I don't know where you get the time, Allah. That's not really a question. Doesn't matter. Don't, don't um, even bother us. No. <laughs> but Chris, that's like, I mean, that's very kind. But don't you find that it's, um, I'm sure people say to you, Chris, you know, I don't understand how you do X or Y. It, it seems to come so naturally. And you probably thinking in the back of your mind, I've been doing this since I was, you know, my early 20s or, you know, this is this is what I do. And no doubt if we talk to a, a pilot or a heating engineer or a, a, a brain surgeon, you know, it's just, it's the stuff they do. And it's, it, it, I mean, I think, you know, what's lovely about life is that there's so many people with different expertise. Everybody's got expertise in something. And it's always gorgeous when you get in touch with that expertise and you, you know, whatever it is, you know, you talk to a, a painter and they just go, you know, this is how I do it. And every everyone's got a little area where they, 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 you know, they know how to do a particular thing, even though in lots of other areas they can't even begin to do to do anything. And um, and I think that's you know that's true community, isn't it? When we can help each other, and the person who can do X comes together with the person who can do Y, and and they get together with the person who can A and B, etc. And then we all put our our sort of strengths together, and then we can do amazing, truly amazing things. And um, I think that's always a, a, a joyful moment when you can sort of plug plug what you can do into into some, something else that somebody else can do and then go to new places. You're so right, because I think I need to give up, and I think I am giving up slowly. Um, I need to stop being mystified by other people's expertise and just be fascinated and sort of um, spellbound by it. I think that's okay. But I was always mi mystified trying to figure it out. You know, what, what's what's going on with their expertise? Well, it's 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 what they do, isn't it? It's 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 the skin within which they live. Well, let, let me ask you: Do you think you've got expertise? Yeah, I do nowadays. Yeah. I didn't used to. Yeah, yeah. But I've I've sat, I've now sort of come to terms. I'm now at ease with my experience, yeah. and I know that I know things from that. You exactly. Gotta be, I mean, you've got to be careful how you ca couch it. But yeah, no, no, know, absolutely. And, and the more the more I feel at ease with that, the more I can breathe. The more I can breathe, the more flow there is. The more flow there is, the more present I am, and the more and and the the better I can be at it because I enjoy it more. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then also, you know, it, it is fun to try and learn you know, a little bit of something that's new every now and then and, and to acquire a new expertise. And, um, you know, hobbies are much maligned, but, you know, just learning how to do something new. You know, you you didn't know how to change a tire. Now you do how to change a tire. You didn't know how to cook, you know, paella. Now you know how to cook it, etc. It's just those little wins as you, because all of us sadly are going to go to the grave mastering only a tiny <laughs> part of kind of human experience and, and human skill. And it's um, it's it's humbling, isn't it? It's very humbling, but if you embrace it, it's really useful. Yes, yes. And also, it's, it's, it's a lovely way of making friends. I mean, you know, sometimes people are afraid to talk about their work or they'll think it's boring to other people. But I think it's, I think there's an undue modesty. If you literally say to somebody, you know, what do you do and how do you do it? It's always fascinating. You know, you, you, you could meet an accountant and they go, oh, you, you don't want to hear about what I do. And you go, hang on a minute. No, actually, I do. What do you do? What, what's it like? What do you, and, you know, five minutes in, it's completely gripping. So I think we, we need to constantly do that with, with everyone we meet. So you're talking about growth there. Um, and, you know, we talked we talked to Wim Hof last week. You know, the the cold therapy genius and um, the breathing genius. And he said he talked about overconvenience, uh, the overcomforting of our generations. You know, there are challenges, of course, there are. But basically, we've never been, it's never been easier to live. It's too easy. What do you think about the instigation, the conscious instigation of voluntary discomfort to 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 help us grow where we may have, have 
stopped being able to? Um, I think coming back to the Stoics, I think it's broadly speaking a good idea. I think Wim Hof's um, things are, are fascinating. But, you know, what would be interesting is how can you design some of those challenges in the psychological uh, space? Um, because there is the equivalent of the cold bath and the sort of breathing exercise in the psychological area. And I think it is those stoic thought exercises where you you start to think, well, what would happen if? I mean, you know, the simplest thing to do is write down a list of your 20 fears and use each of those 20 fears as the basis of an exercise in which you, as it were, bathe in the coldest possible water around that particular fear. And um, I, I think that would be you know, as valuable as, a, as an ice bath. Well, that's a lovely metaphor. I like that. And um, you chose the number 20 there. 20 is a thing with you because in your book of arguments, which I'm fascinated by, I don't think there's a smaller book in the world that I've learned more from. Um, it's it's right up there. It's almost there with the power of now, let me tell you, Anna, which is my go-to Bible. <laughs> Chris, you're too kind. Um, <laughs> but in this, you talk about arguments between couples and you've listed the 20 types of arguments. The, now, are there 20 in your book because that's how many there are or because that's how many you've discovered and it's a work in progress? I think it's a work in progress. There could be new ones. Um, in fact, yes, it's, it's just a first shot. I mean, they're probably... You know, this could be a lifetime's work, 453 and a half. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but I think there are, there are 20 main ones. I think it's, you know, it's so poignant that most of the time people argue not about the area of true conflict, but around some proxy. And, and I think that's, that's the point. It, it's, it's always proxy arguments because people find it so hard to say the thing that they're really actually distressed about. Um, and so it means that we can't resolve the true conflicts between us because we haven't been able to actually share the thing that's uh, identified. Um, you know, think of all the millions and millions and millions of arguments that people have had in Britain around Brexit or the millions and millions of arguments people have had uh, around Donald Trump in America and around, around the world. Now, a lot of these are not actually about that. Now, I had a fascinating conversation with a friend a while back, I remember it always stayed with me. And um, she was a passionate Remainer, and she hated Brexit. And most of the time, at this, I met her at this party, and she was talking to somebody else and sort of trying to convince them about this and that. And then I said to her, what does Brexit mean for you? She went, how do you mean? I went, what, what does it emotionally mean for you? She went, this is, and I said, I, don't, don't give me the sort of tax situation or the sort of stupidity of this or that, or whatever. Just tell me the emotional sort of atmosphere around the thing, which, which is the thing that's really upsetting you. And she grew quite emotional and tears came, her eyes filled. And she said, look, um, I grew up with a father. I didn't get on with him. He wore purple trousers. He went hunting. We lived in a very small village. The atmosphere was claustrophobic, sort of both posh, but not actually, you know, privileged in the deep sense. This was a cold and denying atmosphere. And um, I used to have to go with my father uh, to the pub um, every weekend and he'd have his friends there. And I hated it. And I hated everything they stood for. And I just longed to grow up and start my life and run away. And, and now she was in a totally sort of different world. And she said, Brexit for me is returning back to that pub, back to my father, back to this circle of people. And that's why I hate it so much. And I thought, I said, thank you. That's brilliant. Because 
in a way, it's got everything to do with Brexit and nothing, nothing to do with Brexit. Um, it's a layer. And, and I think that that model of arguing about one thing or getting very emotional about one thing when actually it's maybe to the left or to the right. It's not that the it's not that there's no problem at all. It's just that a lot of the fuel for an argument is 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 being drawn from other sources, subterranean sources. And um it can be so useful if you can just say during an argument, okay, are we arguing about the right thing or is there actually something else that we should be arguing about? Because if there is, let's shift register. I mean, I urge everybody, whether you're in a relationship or not, to, to, to get this book, Arguments, because the 20 uh, types of arguments are intermittent, domestic, defensive, spoiling, pathologizing, escalation, eve of journey, absentee, identity, normality, uh, parental resemblance, excessive logic, attention-seeking, paraphrase, in paradise, salt crush, lost item, guilt, and the no-sex argument is number 20. <laughs> yes. yes it is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you, very hard to mention. Very hard or, or to mention. Or, yeah. or a low. Or a high and a low. It's funny though, isn't it? Because you're talking about emotion there and you're talking about Brexit and you're talking about um, elections or referenda. You know, and from what I can see and what do I know, but it seems to me that, that page one of the playbook of how to win an election is, is fight an emotional campaign because it's the one that's always going to move the dial most. Absolutely. Um, because ultimately, and you know, pollsters and others know this, m most people are not judging the policies of different parties at a, at, at a very precise technological, financial detail. It's the emotional atmosphere that surrounds a politician or a party that people are responding to. And, uh, you know, that's, it, it could seem superficial. It's not, it, it plugs into the deepest aspects of us. Um, but I think, People would understand each other so much better if they were able to explain why they hold the positions they do. Not, not as it were, what the positions are or, or why the ideas are so good, but why do they hold those ideas? Because then we get into the realm of fear and longing. And I think a lot of it is fear and not fear of like, if this party wins, I'll be unemployed. There could be that fear, but it's an emotional fear. It's like, if this party wins, um, you know, I'll be humiliated. If this party wins, it'll be back to the saddest period of my life. Uh, if this party wins, um, you know, people like me won't be heard. It's not necessarily true, but it's emotionally true. And, and I think that's so important to try and understand it if we're trying to resolve political argument. Or right, let's talk about um, one of the ultimate emotions, uh, anger. Is anger ever useful as anger? Look, I think it is, it, it's sort of an achievement sometimes in some contexts to be able to show anger. I mean, think of toddlers, right? There's a the sort of toddler who has a temper tantrum. And this is seen as a real problem by everyone. But, and it's very bad if it happens in a supermarket, but far more worrying than the toddler who has tantrums is the toddler who doesn't have tantrums. Psychologists who look after children, if they come across a child who cannot have tantrums, massive, massive alarm bells ring. Why can this child not show its anger, its frustration? Often it's to do with trauma. Often this child is so terrified of the anger of somebody else that they can't show their own anger. So it's very important when bringing up a child to create a safe environment in which anger can be displayed but not end up being catastrophic or very dangerous. So a discharge of anger 
of in, in a sort of moderated uh, way, which as we grow older, we can dial down and down and down. And so we don't throw ourselves on, on the floor in the supermarket. But, you know, maybe every now and then there's a role for throwing ourselves down on the floor in the living room um, around our loved ones, so long as they're not scared, no one's hitting anyone and, we're, you know, it's within measure. I think despair and frustration belong to life and therefore to be able to show that aspect um, within, again, lots of caveats here, within moderation, with safety, et cetera, et cetera, that belongs, I think, to uh, a wise and a good life. You know, the Buddha, if he was really doing his stuff, should have got furious every now and then because there are things that are enraging um, and we should be able to to, to show that. Um, but I think what goes... So, so I think there's the problem of the good boy and girl and the good boy or girl has learned to be too good too early. They've learned to um, adjust themselves to the demands of others. They're people pleasers. And as a recovering people pleaser myself, um, I know how it's taken me a lifetime, literally a lifetime to go, <clears throat> excuse me, you are standing on my foot. Um, and, you know, it, it was a major thing, a major achievement. I had to go to therapy, etc., because I never, ever could dare to tell anyone if there was a problem. Uh, it had to do with the fact that I'd been exposed quite early on to somebody who was very, very angry, so angry that I thought they were going to kill me. And it made me very, very meek. And it made me very sort of people pleasing. And I realized, A, it doesn't actually please anyone, because people sense that in you. And they go, look, just tell me, do you want still or sparkling water? Just don't stop hedging your bets. Just tell me, you know, and if, if you're somebody's guest, they just want to be told like, you know, do you want to go to bed now or not? Or, or you know, what do you want for lunch, etc. So being the sort of hesitant person who always tries to adjust themselves to somebody else, it, it, it's actually quite exhausting and quite difficult for other people. It doesn't please. So that's an important thing. Um, and, and then also, you know, it's, it's much more reassuring to be around somebody that when there's a problem, they'll let you know. Uh, if, if, you, if you have sort of someone who's sort of nicer than thou, you just never know where you stand with them. You think, you know, is that smile a real smile or not a real smile? So there's a kind of reality to somebody who, when things are going well, they'll give you a hug, they'll go, it's terrific. And when they're in a bad mood and things are not going well, they'll tell you, they'll go, look, I'm a bit disappointed, I've got to say, uh, you know, I'll get over it. But right now, I'm kind of annoyed. And you think, okay, fair enough. That's okay. I can take that. And I think everybody knows that that sort of person is okay to deal with. You know where you stand. So, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of stuff out there against anger. A lot of a lot of advice about controlling our anger. And I, I get that, of course. There's very, very bad versions of anger. There's rage, you know. But I think within moderation, in moderation, um, the discharge of anger is actually, does actually belong to maturity. Can we talk about the denial of denial? Okay, I, one of my favorite things when I was, you know, flamethrowing at people, it's like, you know, you're in denial over this. Come on, accept it, then we can all move on. But you, you do say, you know, there, denial can be useful at times. Don't, and I, I could be the ultimate deny because I'm in denial of denial, Allah. Yeah, <laughs> we could go round and round. Denial of denial of denial. Well, look, I think, um, again, it's, it, it's all to do with finding the right balance. Um, and I think that the world is now so in love with therapy and so in love with taking a pickaxe to denial that we forget that, that certain ways in which we deny are linked to health. Really what it means is I can't look at this now because there's a lot going on and therefore I'm going to shut it away. And part of shutting it away is quite good. I mean, if you're facing a fire 
and you know you're saying you know get you know get the fire extinguisher there's you know things the flames are reaching the ceiling and somebody goes well how do you feel about that don't be in denial about your full emotion you go look this is not the moment right now i'm shutting down everything everything other than you know the urgent need to get that fire extinguisher and in less urgent moments there's there's other versions of this there's moments in our lives when we do have to shut down we don't have the resources we don't have the help there's too much going on and therefore our survival is predicated on us being able to just not examine certain feelings long term we probably have to go back to them and we'll have to deal with them but you know this is this is what happens around trauma in the military you know people who've been in the military um th- they end up having ptsd um having to deal with their trauma from conflict zones etc but they'll also tell you that in the middle of a conflict zone you can't analyze your feelings that's for when you're back home and you've got a good therapist um then it's very important so it's it's as important sometimes to shut your emotions so that you can do the task that's been allotted to you um just as important to do that as sometimes also it's important to process reprocess the feeling that you haven't fully had at the time Well, uh, three more tenets, then we'll let you go. You've been amazing, priceless as always. Um, First of all, how do we avoid marriage death by a thousand squabbles? Mm, Such a big question. I think, um, look, I think marriages do die. Um, I I don't believe in people getting bored. I don't think people just, just get bored of each other. I think what tends to happen is people don't feel hurt, heard, and they also get hurt, and those problems are not resolved. And you almost don't notice the problem. Um, coming back to my water metaphor, it's a drip, 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 until finally there's a flood. But it's it, it, it happens over years. And I think what tends to happen is the arguments are not properly resolved. Come back to arguments. So, you know, somebody makes a little throwaway, sarcastic remark about somebody else's I don't know, cousin or something, uh, about, your, about your spouse's cousin. And that little jab of pain goes in. Um, you don't know you've made that jab of pain. And the person who's on the receiving end of that jab of pain doesn't really pick you up on it. And there's just, you just end up left with a residue of hurt, a residue of sarcastic feeling, a residue of resentment, etc. And then let's talk about sex. Can we talk about sex on the show? I'd okay? love you to talk about yeah, sex okay. on the show. Um, so, you know, I can't believe you've left it so long. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> you know, some people say, you know, why does sex die in relationships? Again, it's got nothing to do with some sort of natural biological decline or very little to do. You know, the thing that really kills sex is anger and annoyance with your partner for the fact that you don't feel understood and you don't feel properly loved. I mean, the most erotic thing in the world is to feel heard and seen and respected and liked. That is brilliant. You know, if you feel that somebody has that kind of attitude, you want to take off their clothes and you want to jump into bed and you want to, you know, do all sorts of things. That's the erotic is really the sort of the outcome of being seen and heard. It's got nothing to do with candles or fancy hotel rooms. Um, and the reason why sex is easier at the beginning of a relationship, I think, is because people haven't had a chance to misunderstand us. And we kindly and benignly fill in the gap. And so we, we, we just go, oh, I think this person's really nice. They haven't actually shown that much that they are that nice, but we imagine that they are. We've got a good tailwind, so we sort of imagine that they are. With time, um, 
many relationships, people haven't been that kind. They haven't understood. And what tends to happen is a sort of mutual warfare where somebody goes, well, you didn't understand my feelings about my mother, so I don't give a damn about your feelings about your boss. And the other one, and then the other one goes, well, you know, because you didn't feel, uh, you know, care about, you know, what I like for dinner, then I'm not really going to care about where you want to go for the weekend. And it's just a little arms race, an escalation. And this is what kills sex, and it ends up killing love as well. So, you know, psychologists will talk about rupture and repair. And they'll say that in a relationship, there are lots of moments of rupture. Somebody doesn't understand somebody else, there's a misunderstanding, or there's a bit of aggression, etc. Um, they say that a relationship doesn't matter how much rupture you have in a relationship. You, you can have moments of rupture every hour. What counts is, can you repair? And repair means a proper analysis of what went wrong, why both sides are upset, uh, and how you can do better next time. If you're doing that regularly with your partner and you've got a partner that is willing to listen, that's sexy and it's it's a marriage saver. You know, the, the best, you know, the most romantic thing you can do to your partner when they say something like, you know, why did you do that? You know, rather than going, because you're an idiot or who cares or whatever. If you can go, um, look, I can see that you're upset. Just tell me why. I'm ready to listen. Maybe I've made a mistake. I don't know why. I didn't mean to hurt you, but it seems like I've done something wrong. So why don't we have a nice glass of something and just chat about it. That is so romantic. You know, to be able to ask your partner, um, are you upset with me about anything? Is there, is there something you'd like to get off your chest? Um, is there anything that I could do better? It sounds servile, but it's not. It, it's, again, it's a relationship saver. If, if, if you can say to your partner, um, you know, there are these 10 things that actually, oddly, I'm feeling a bit resentful about, and they can hear you and go, hmm, okay, all right, well, I've got my own list of things. And you can chat about these things in an area, in an air with an air of sort of fun and, and kindness and, and forbearance. That is brilliant. You'll never get divorced. You'll never, ever get divorced if that happens. But, you know, most people, you know, the killer, the most awful trait of human beings. I'm guilty of this. I hope you're not guilty of it. But we're all we're all sometimes guilty of it is defensiveness. When people get defensive and they go, no, the problem's with you. Or no, you're dreaming, etc. That's just a killer. You just think, oh no, because they're defensive and then you'll have to get defensive and it's an arms race of escalation of defensiveness on both sides. Put the defenses down and go, I hear you. Um, I, I can see you're upset. I don't know why, but I want to find out because I love you. If you can do that, you'll never get divorced. Amazing. I mean, that's why date nights are so brilliant. It's preventative medicine, aren't they? If you have a regular yeah. date night. But but I think it's not just, yes, I mean, but it's not just, you know, key thing is what do you do in the date night? Um, it's not just that you're going to go out for dinner. What you've got to do is literally, I, I mean, okay, his advice for daters, I know it sounds a bit rigid. Both parties should write a list called things like, um, things I'm annoyed with you about or air it, things I'd like to complain to you about. Both parties do it. And both parties, you, you order the first course and you go, right, we're, gonna, we're ticking off one, two, three, and four, main course, five, six, seven, et cetera. It sounds grim, but you should do it with fun. It, it, should, it, should, be, it should be a game. Um, if you do that, you'll, you'll have sex after the date night and, and, and you'll never get divorced because, because that, is what, that is why people, you know, if two people who get divorced... Um, you talk to a divorce lawyer, why do people get divorced? It's because there's pent-up anger over years of somebody 
who's not felt heard. This is why people have affairs. You know, why do you have an affair? It's not about sex. It's about feeling that you've not been heard. Um, and it's got absolutely nothing to do with sex. If you feel heard, you won't have an affair. You won't, you, you'll fancy other people and you might quite like the look of them and et cetera. You won't, you won't bother to have an affair. It'll be too boring to actually go off and have an affair because you'll have fundamentally have felt heard. Right. Um, can I ask you two more questions? Do you have time? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, I've got time. Here we go. Um, can you please speak to the usefulness, the power of vulnerability? Yeah, I mean, we're so trained, aren't we, to try and be invulnerable. Um, and there's lots of good reasons when we first go to school to sort of toughen up in various ways, etc. But like so many things, we've overlearned that lesson. We don't know what it's like to be vulnerable. Now, now, let's try and define that. What does it mean to be vulnerable? To be vulnerable is to reveal to another person stuff about yourself that they could use against you and that places you in a position of weakness vis-a-vis -vis them. And so it's, it's a gamble. It's really about trust. It's like, can I trust you? Well, I'm going to make myself vulnerable and see what happens. Now, a lot of the time, people think that they can make friends by being cheerful, by being interesting. And, you know, we all of us do know people who are cheerful and interesting, and they, they go a certain way. The people we really love as our friends are people who know how to make themselves vulnerable. And the greatest gift that you can give a friend is a little bit of your vulnerability. So, you know, if you go to a friend and you say, you know, I'm doing great. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great too. So everything okay? Yeah, terrific. Great. These two people are just going to go nowhere. I mean, this is the most boring conversation in the world. Um, whereas if one of them goes, yeah, you know what? Um, my partner and I, we're just, we're actually arguing quite a lot at the moment. And it's, it's really distressing me. And I don't know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm really sad. And then the other one goes, wow, God, um, I feel, I, I, I know this sounds weird, but like, I'm having a real trouble with my boss. Uh, you know, I, I feel that they don't respect, I think I've got to leave. I think I've got to leave. And that's huge because I've got a mortgage, blah, blah, blah. Uh, these two people are going to be beginning to share in their love lives, in their work lives, bits of the vulnerable area. Or either they go like, my kids don't really, they're not friendly to me, or my mum hates me, or I've got, I'm angry with my dad, whatever it is. All these things are gifts to another person. Um, they're ways of saying, I'm human, I trust you, help me. You know, it's, it's a real privilege if somebody comes to you with a problem. You know, all of us were so independent, but actually, I'm not talking about sort of nagging or, you know, can you lend me five million pounds forever? I'm not talking about that. But if somebody says, you know, I've got a spot of bother and I just, I just want to pick your brains, that's, that's a privilege. That's like, that's great. Um, that's a sign that you matter to somebody. And so these are all ways in which vulnerability fosters a feeling of community and friendship. And it's devastating to hear, particularly men, let's, let's put the gender spin on this. I think men are particularly bad at this. I mean, I've got male friends and oh my God, you know, it's all got to be the jokes and it's all got to be fun and everything's up and whatever. And I, I get that. And there's a role for that and it can be great. But sometimes you also long to say, you know what, mate, do you think if you've got a problem and... They, they're longing to tell you and you're longing to tell them. You just want to unburden yourself. You want a chance to, to actually show the dark side. And if you do, the results can be so beautiful, so nice. So, yeah, a little bit of a vulnerability cocktail to help a friendship. I agree. So vulnerability, good, um, up to a point. Projection, bad. The perils of projections. First of all, some people might not know what we're referring to. Here. Can you just briefly explain what projection is, why we do it and how we might stop 
Well, look, projection is um, a name given to a quite sensible phenomenon whereby the way our minds work is that we're all the time mapping past experiences onto present experiences. So, you know, we've seen a tiger and last time a tiger came along, it ate our hand. And so we've really kept a memory for what a tiger looks like and what it can do. And the next time that we come into contact with something that looks like a tiger, we will project our previous experience of what happened to us with a tiger and we'll be pretty careful with that last remaining hand. The problem is that our minds are actually not very good at judging what is a repeat experience and what is a new and quite different experience. So what happens is you had the tiger experience and then along comes a little pussycat. And you go, oh my God, I know what that pussycat's going to do. It's going to bite off my hand. Now, actually, it's not. It's just a pussycat and it's not going to bite off your hand. It actually wants to lick your hand and be quite sweet. But you're thinking, you're thinking that it's about to bite your hand and you respond accordingly. So what we're often doing is dumping emotions and analyses of behavior that belonged pretty well in one area and we're dumping that in another. So it happens a lot in relationships when, let's say you've had quite a difficult time with, let's say, your dad. And your dad was very critical and very angry and really squashed you and let you down. And then you're with somebody, let's say, a man who is, you know, who happens to say something like, um, I think it's your turn to do the bins today. And that tone, that tone triggers a memory of that relationship with your dad. And you think, oh my God, I'm back in that situation. And because you know, you feel in danger, you then project lots of feelings that were genuine responses to your dad, but are not genuine responses to your partner. And you go, you're bringing me down, you're ruining my life, how dare you? At which point the partner might go, hang on a minute, I just, I just said, I think it's your turn to put the bins out. And, and, and we all do this. We all take emotions that were fair enough in one area and have a heightened response uh, to the situation. Um, you know, there's that expression that therapists like to use. If it's hysterical, it's historical. In other words, if you're responding with heightened emotion to a particular situation, almost certainly, you know, and it might be fear, it might be panic, etc. It's almost certainly because you've been triggered by something that reminds you of the past rather than something that's right in front of you. Oh, my goodness. If it's hysterical, it's historical. I've never heard that before, and I'm never going to forget it. <laughs> I'm never going to be able to stop hearing it. Right, one more. Here we go. Anna, first of all, thank you so much. And thank you. No, no, seriously, thanks is all mine. To think or not to think, right, that is not the question, but it is sometimes a nice option to have in your back pocket. How can we think more when we want to and it's good for us, and less when we don't want to, and it's bad for us. Mm. I think I think we're thinking about different sorts of thinking. There's rumination, there's obsessive thinking, where we're circling a topic, you know, sort of OCD thinking, where we're saying, you know, did I post the letter? Yes, I did. Uh, did I? Did I? Did I? You know, it's just going round and round. And there's versions of this in, 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 in life. I think that sort of thinking doesn't help. What we need to do is more productive thinking. And that often involves another person where we say, hang on a minute, I'm going to take this problem, I'm going to talk it through with somebody else. You're still thinking about it. But sometimes our minds do 
st they, they stop being rational on certain topics. We can be totally rational in 100 areas, but in certain areas, we lose our minds. We can't think straight. And we need to plug our mind into the mind of somebody else. So it's to literally straighten or recalibrate our thoughts. Um, or we give it a break and then we return to it with fresh eyes and see that our thinking was panic thinking and therefore wasn't very fruitful. So I want to stay on the side of thinking. Ultimately, it's all we've got. All we've got is rational thinking. But let's not mistake panic thinking, OCD thinking, ruminating thinking for rational thinking. We want a lot more of the rational thinking and a lot less of the obsessive thinking. And for that, we may need to get help. We may not be able to do it on our own. And there is help around. And that's why it's lovely to have a good cup of tea and chat over a problem with somebody else. Thank you, Doctor. <laughs> I think we're done. Brilliant. Um, what's, okay. the, what's the prognosis on the leak? Um, I'm going to get onto it now with our, our philosophical council behind us. I'm going <laughs> to get back to the leak and um, hope to dry it out. I owe you. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Seriously, how clever is that man, Alain de Botton, today's special guest on How to Wow. And you get the sense he's got a cheeky side. Oh, yeah. This show is brought to you by M&S Plant Kitchen. Now, if I'm being honest, we haven't tried these yet. We have them in the fridge, but we haven't tried them yet. They are Plant Kitchen Posh Dogs. Our grilling game changers are made with juicy mushrooms. I can't back this one up because I haven't tasted them yet, but I believe M&S Plant Kitchen. There's soya in there. There's caramelized onions and a hint of black pepper. I am talking once again, in case you didn't hear it first time round, about their Plant Kitchen Posh Dogs. They are dank. They are drip. They are lit. They are. Give me one more. They are sick, but they won't make you sick. All your money back. No, I'm only joking. M&S Plant Kitchen, proud sponsors of How to Wow. Please rate and subscribe.